What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. I think the significance of our beliefs affecting our behaviours holds true uh, whether you believe in God or not here today. We're doing a preaching series called Staying Healthy, and today we're going to be getting a healthy view of God. At least that's my intention. Paul gives us a crystal clear vision of God in a very brief section of a letter to his uh, protege and fellow church leader, Timothy. We're going to look at it today to see what it will teach us about God. It was probably a Jewish hymn uh, that was written um, uh, possibly before Christianity, but the early Christians heard it, liked it, and incorporated it into their worship. And within it, there are three pictures that we can examine which show us what God is like. Do you know God? Do you know what he's like? How would you describe him to someone? There's infinitely more to be seen than what we're going to get a glimpse of today. But here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. We're going to look at three pictures that Paul suggests here. A mighty throne, an empty grave, and the brightest light. It's been wonderful to worship God uh, together as we've sung, as we've heard him speak to us. Let's just pray now that we would continue to do that as, Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to you. I want to thank you that so much of what I'm going to say uh, you've already been speaking to us about as we've worshipped. Please, God, give us a clear, healthy vision of who you are. Whatever we currently believe, oh God, help us to see the truth. I'm going to hope to give you an opportunity to respond to that at the end. Maybe you don't believe in Christianity. Maybe you're not sure. Uh, there'll be an opportunity uh, for you to change that uh, at the end of today. So let's look at these pictures in turn. Firstly, a mighty throne. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. With words like this, it's pretty obvious that Paul is making a point about who is in charge. You may have noticed uh, we're living in a time that has some political uncertainty in it. A general election that was definitely not going to happen until 2020 is now going to happen in June. A once-in-a-generation opportunity to vote for Scottish independence 
may be happening again less than five years after the previous one. It's easy to characterize uh, these and other instances that we see of political maneuvering as simply lying. But I think they should also remind us that governing is really difficult. And it tends to be full of compromises and complications and change and uncertainty. Because that's what people are like. And politics is lots of people altogether. Political machinations usually betray uncertainty. Leaders are uncertain about their authority, and so they seek for ways to change the situation to make them more secure. And people are uncertain about their rulers, and so they look for ways to change them. In total contrast to this, God is the ruler of all things and has no doubts about his authority. Now, Paul's writing at a time of huge political and social pressure against Christians. And so he wants Timothy and the church in Ephesus that Timothy was working with to have a basis for putting their confidence in God alone. And so he tells them that God is categorically different to everyone and everything else. He says, God is king of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just one king or lord among many. He's not the best one to choose. He's over all of them. He's the only one. He isn't top of the league. He's in a league of his own. The two phrases Paul uses to describe this kind of amount to the same thing, but they're also slightly different. So kings would be a reference to earthly authorities and rulers, those who shape many of the, the practical, the everyday aspects of our lives. Lords is more about other gods, other, those other things that would claim our trust, our affection, our obedience. And Paul's saying that God is supreme over all of them. He also uses the word only to describe God's authority. He says the only sovereign. And there's history behind this. The first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the great old Jewish prayer declared, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Both of these are only statements. They demand an exclusive treatment of God. You don't get to put anyone else in his category. Jesus took up the exact same way of thinking about God and applied it to himself. He says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, talking in this way would have made people in ancient Ephesus as uncomfortable as it makes people in modern Edinburgh. Firstly, I mean, isn't Jesus being a bit narrow here? A bit, you know, a bit exclusive in his way of thinking. Can he really be saying that? I think Jesus was just being honest. No one else can offer what Jesus offers. 
which is himself. Look at all the other claims. See all the others who are either pointing towards or saying it about themselves. No one has done what Jesus has done. No one is who Jesus is. And so when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's not being tribal, he's just being truthful. But the second objection might be, well, why, if this is the case, if God is in charge of all things, why doesn't it entirely look like that? Timothy and maybe the few hundred Christians he was working with were living in a city of 250,000 people. It was one of the major cities of the Roman Empire, and so it was full of displays of the glory and the might of Rome. It was also a center of uh, worship to a goddess called Artemis, and the temple that they built for her was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a lot of evidence around them that would say, this statement that Paul's making is ridiculous. If you consider the evidence before your eyes, it just doesn't look like God's the only one and that he's in charge. Moses and the Israelites probably thought the same thing when God said that he would lead them out of slavery from the most powerful nation of earth. But that's what happened. And all Pharaoh and his armies and all the Egyptian gods were exposed as impotent. Jesus' first followers experienced the same thing. They had the rush of excitement. Maybe he's the answer. And then they saw him horribly executed. It's not going to happen. But then Sunday comes. And it's happened. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus told them when they saw him resurrected and victorious. And so we believe what we've been told. That Jesus lived and died and rose again to new life. He is greater than sin and death. There's no ruler on earth who gets to say this. No government, no power, no corporation can say, actually, we've triumphed over sin and death. Only Jesus gets to say that. So they don't get to veto anything that he says. They are inferior to him. They're not even in the same class or category as him. He is alive. He has ascended. He is reigning. We believe that. And we wait for the day when it will be revealed fully. When he will return and assert his authority. And we know that the world is not as it will be when he has finished with it. For now, we live in weakness. God has chosen to display his might through fragility. And what seems like nonsense to the world is the wisdom of God. If you're confident about this, you'll live this way. You'll tell other people about it. And one day, you'll be vindicated when the might and the glory of God is seen by all and the truth of what we've believed will be acknowledged by everyone. So who are you worshipping? Who gets your attention? 
your interest and time? Who gets your affection, your joy and your praise? Who gets your obedience? What makes your decisions? What do you do with what you've been given? Paul reminds us with a picture of a mighty throne that there's only one who we should worship. The second picture he gives us is of an empty grave. He says of God, who alone has immortality. Like his use of only in our first phrase, who alone is another claim of exclusivity for God. So we've considered his authority, now we're going to consider his life. And it's not just his authority in his life, it's all authority and all life. Today's the London Marathon, but I've chosen to be here with you guys instead. <laughs> New figures have just been released, actually, which show that in last year's London Marathon, competitors aged 55 to 64 ran just as fast as those aged 25 to 34. Now, maybe this is just another instance of millennials failing to live up to the expectations of their parents. <laughs> but there's an ongoing narrative in our culture, isn't there, that you can stay healthy and fit and just as able for much longer than you anticipated, than much longer than previous generations. And that's all well and good. And I, I want that for myself. I don't intend to be running marathons when I'm in the 55 to 64 bracket, but I would like to at least think that I could that's all right. But there's actually something... <laughs> it's good enough. But there's something actually deeper going on in this story. People at the cutting edge of technology are trying not just to extend healthy life, but to extend life indefinitely. To actually delay, even defy, death. It's called transhumanism. It's combining our bodies and minds with machines so that we'll never die. And obviously that sounds a lot like sci-fi, and that's where uh, most people in technology get their best ideas from. But there are people who are seriously endeavoring to make this happen. Now I'm skeptical about this for more than one reason, but ultimately I don't believe it's going to succeed because we've all rebelled against the giver of life. And the consequence of that is that you're going to die. Now, whether you believe that or not, you know from observation that this is what happens to everyone, that we end. However good a condition my body is currently in, it's ultimately only going in one direction. Everything about me is breakable, and it will break down sooner or later. It could be sudden and shocking, it might just seem to be, uh, after a long, long life, people are like, it's just the passage of time. But that's what happens to all of us. God is not like that. It doesn't happen to him. It won't ever happen to him. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is as gloriously perfect as he has ever been. And in fact, tenses like has ever been are categorically incorrect 
to describe the one who made time and exists out with it. This is impossible to comprehend. This, I, obviously, my brain is like stuck within this sky. It just feels like it's pulled out of shape the moment I start to consider the infinity and immortality and eternality of God. Immortality belongs to him. It is his. Perhaps even more incredibly, he's decided to give it to us. Even though our bodies will die, we all will continue uh, to exist. He has put something in our nature that had a beginning but actually won't have an end. We were made by him in his image and part of the way that we display this image is by from now on living eternally. And we have the choice of how to spend that eternity with him in joy or away from him. But only he has immortality as an innate characteristic of his being. Only he can give it as a gift. Now he has, as we celebrated last weekend, tasted death. But this was on our behalf and the grave couldn't hold him. People look at death as the final enemy. That's why this technology is going on. People are like, then that's when it's going to end. And, and we say, no, it's uncheatable. It's undefeatable. It's the destiny of all of us. And it is. But Jesus has defeated it. Out of his generosity and love, he has given us the greatest gift and our greatest hope. He says, I'm going to give you eternal life with me forever. And so just as we look forward to the final revelation of his authority, when we look at a mighty throne, so we can look forward to new life with him as we consider an empty grave. Paul said to the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. It's a euphemism for death. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you frightened of death? What we really believe about God is shown in what we fear and what we hope for. The one who alone has immortality offers to hold your hand through death and bring you to himself. And this is our third picture. The brightest light. God, Paul says, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Our sun is 
955,807 miles from Earth, give or take. Yet, we cannot even look at it directly for a moment here without the risk of damage. Its power changes us. It can hurt us easily, even in Scotland. <laughs> you might feel you're about as far away from the sun as it's possible to be. You don't have to move very far. It's a whole other matter. It's a whole other feeling of force of its power. If you could get as close to it as possible without disintegrating, there's currently a plan to get within a million miles of the sun, and the thickness of the materials going to be involved are just ridiculous. But you could get as close to it as possible without being consumed by it. Its light would still be the merest pale and weak flicker compared to the glory of God. We have seen nothing even when we feel the sun beat down upon us. God's people have a long history of knowing this. When God met with Israel at Mount Sinai after rescuing them from Egypt, we're told the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Psalm 104 sings, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. I have no idea how you do that. How you cover yourself with light as with a garment. That's what God does. Paul explains what this radiance means. It means that God is unapproachable. There are two aspects to this. Firstly, he is of a different nature to us. In John chapter 4, Jesus described God as being spirit. And Wayne Grudem gives a helpful definition of this. He says, God exists as a being that is not made of matter. So everything you know, everything you've experienced, everything we see around us, all of creation is matter. I know if you know physics, you'll know more of it than that, but you know, it's a created thing. God's not like that. He has no parts or dimensions. His being is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses and is more excellent than any kind of existence. So again, Paul is pointing us towards something that is unique in God. But this isn't just about the science of God, as it were. There is a theological truth at work here. So this is the second aspect. The first is that he's other than, that, other than us. The second is that we are separated from him. To sinful people like us, God is dangerous. Because of his perfection, because of his perfect animosity towards evil, he loves good perfectly. And that means he hates what isn't good and wants to end it. And so he is, in the Bible's words, a consuming fire. And he warns us, no one may see me and live. We can't see him, not just because he's invisible to our eyes, but because we are sinful to his. 
it would destroy us to be in his presence. Like a scrap of tissue in a roaring inferno, like an ant in a hurricane. And yet, and yet, the Bible also tells us that God wants to be seen by us. In the Old Testament, there are scattered incidences when people have encounters with God. They, They see him in some way. They experience him. He's there with them. And he taught them to pray this to each other. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they would sing like they did in Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. How does that work itself out? These often mysterious moments are explained and what they suggest is fully revealed in Jesus. John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Paul picks up on this idea of Jesus showing us God. He says to the Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God. And then the writer to the Hebrews puts these two things together. He says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So as the radiance of God goes forth, we can see this in Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see God. There's no God in heaven unlike Jesus. By taking on human flesh, by setting aside his glory. Jesus has enabled it, has enabled us to see him, to see God. And God can come close to us. God can live among us as one of us. God can live for us and die for us to reconcile us to himself. And so, instead of getting destruction in his presence, we get peace. And instead of, re- instead of receiving death and punishment, we receive forgiveness. And the darkness of our lives is flooded with a light that brings life. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we could not see, Jesus has shown us 
the one we could not approach has come to us. Charles Wesley put it like this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. And so one day we will all see him. And for those who have believed in him, it will be wonderful. Revelation tells us about the end time, when Jesus, in fact, past the end time, when Jesus made everything new and brought all his people into his kingdom. John says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in his holy city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. That is amazing because we had previously been told we couldn't or we would die. But now, John says, then we will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, which means we'll belong to him. And nights will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. God has not compromised his holiness one iota, but he has established his son as a mediator between us and him to save us, to reconcile us. And Paul knows this, and he told Timothy about it in the second chapter of this letter that we've been reading from today. Even, I think, as Paul shows us the staggering nature of God, that he is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, I'm sure that Paul was remembering his own story. How when he, Paul, was an enemy of God, convinced that he was right and Jesus was wrong, a blinding flash of light smashed him to the ground. And he knew it was God, and he must have thought it was death. And then he heard Jesus speaking to him. And the light meant life and forgiveness and God with him. We've been looking today at the glory and the greatness and the superiority of God. And if by doing so, God has seemed distant to you, it doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus took God's punishment on the cross, because God exhausted his holy and righteous anger at sin on Jesus and has nothing left for you but his affection, you can be welcomed in to him the moment you put your trust in him. The moment you repent of your old way of life and say to him, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please accept me. Because he's died for you, because he will become Lord of your life and turn the whole thing around, he will. And so because of Jesus, we can be brought close, so close 
that we can call the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, our Father. We began by considering how important our view of God is. And it absolutely is. I want to encourage you to take this opportunity to think about what your behavior tells you about what you believe. But as C.S. Lewis observed, I read the other day that the, fulfillment, uh, that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is infinitely more important. As we have thought about him today, we have seen what he thinks of us. As we have tried to look at him, we see how he sees us. And this is gloriously hopeful. Today has been a reality check. Do you believe the things that we've looked at today? I believe that God is speaking to us today, all of us, but to some of you in particular. He's showing you what he's really like so that you would respond to him. He's giving you an opportunity to believe in him as he really is. Maybe you need to repent of what you've forgotten to believe. Or maybe you've never believed it and today is the day it's begun. You're already feeling it. You're already thinking it. And we want to help you to respond to him. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Just now, fix your eyes on him. You can't see him. but you can see him. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and believed. Is that you today? You're just finding your mind full of a new conviction, a new certainty that I've said, what I've said today is true. And you can't quite get it. This is a change. And that's because God has opened your eyes. And he does this in a moment. And then he does it for the rest of our life. And so we want to help you with that. And so I just want to ask you, uh, maybe let's just maybe everyone close their eyes just for a moment. If this is you, if you have suddenly realized that this is true, if you're choosing now to believe this, could you just put your hand up? Because I want to know uh, where you are. And we're going to just want to chat with you afterwards. We want to give you a Bible, which will help you see more of these things of God and help you uh, to take a step further towards him. If that's you, can you just put your hand up now so we know where you are and we can chat with you? Okay. Here's how Paul ends. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Which means yes, so be it. Why don't we, if you're able to stand, 
stand and let's sing his praises, this great and mighty God.